world around us and how it might relate to it. We're going to have a guest caller. It's very exciting. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. We're going to have our usual uh, bad cop segment, our usual good project segment. We've got a lot going on. I have a co-host today who's had one of those, I don't know what the technical term is, mishap? Yeah. On the way to the studio. (laughs) He'll be with us shortly, but for now... I am blessed, blessed to have Local Bag, not just the super producer of all time, but serving as co-host right now. Local Bag, how are you doing today? You're too sweet. I'm I'm doing all right. I just got out of work and now I'm here, so I'm happier to be here than I was at work. So, so. You, you don't count this as work? No. Um, yeah, I, I love this. This is amazing. Um, and yeah, I don't think it is work. It is more, well, I guess... It is it is work, but um, you know it's like a different it's a different kind of work. It's a different kind of work. Yeah, one that I choose to do. Yeah. Yeah. So today uh, we're going to be talking about a project in Atlanta, but increasingly everywhere, called Stop Cop City, uh, defend the Atlanta forest. We're going to talk about some specific initiatives. We're going to have a caller talking about that topic, mm-hmm. but inevitably, there's no way for us not to reflect on what's been happening. In the Middle East in the last few days, some of the most dramatic events people remember seeing. Local bag, any initial hot takes? I realize hot take is not the mode you want for mm. um, devastatingly serious g- global struggles. Right. But um, how did you experience the last couple of days? I want to check in. Um, well, with everything going on in, in occupied Palestine, I think it's, um, it's correct and valid to... Um, stand with those who have been oppressed for the past 80 years by the Israeli government um, and by the Zionist occupation in, in Palestine. And I, my heart goes out to all of the folks in the Gaza Strip. Um, personally, I, I'm not Palestinian, but I am Armenian, and my people have recently been, um, have recently been uh, one could say, ethnically cleansed out of their out of their um, homeland of about 5,000 years of the um, the region of Artsakh in um, on the border of Armenia and Azerbaijan. So, I seeing something like this, seeing the Palestinians um, show an, show incredible bravery and resistance in the face of occupation is very it is very devastating. Um, like the loss of lives that comes with that, and that comes with revolution. Unfortunately, revolution is never is never not bloody um but in the face of occupation there there are some things that i don't know i don't know how to put this but some things that must be done that's really i mean you i think you put it really well and you do mention for those of you listening who haven't had a chance to sort of find things out about the situation in nagorno-karabakh and and uh, Mm -hmm. what's going on there uh it's it's worth checking out and Mm -hmm. and and all of us educating ourselves on uh, you know, it's a, it's a strange phenomenon of the world that because of, I don't know, geopolitical interests and people's ongoing fascinations, we pay attention more to some struggles than to others. Mm-hmm. That's inevitable. Yeah. We shouldn't, like, get trapped in endless what about, but it's also good for us to know more about what's going on in lots of yeah. places. About Palestine, you know, I, I feel like I've told this story before, but it, it really stuck with me. Because uh, people keep comparing this to like Israel's 9/11, not my favorite discourse, but I do want to—I do have a 9/11 memory, y'all, to share, <laughs> which is this. So I was actually in New York as it happens on on 9/11. Mm-hmm. I was staying with my friend in an apartment pretty far downtown, uh, and it happened. It was intense. It was bizarre. All we did was 
like sort of freak out, feel paralyzed, watch television, replays of the train of the planes hitting the towers, just like for three days. That's all we did. And then we realized we should probably move. The air was really toxic. It was all nasty. And so we decided we would walk because the subways weren't really running. We would walk uptown to his father's apartment, which is on the Upper West Side, if you know Manhattan. So we walked. We took a long walk. We walked up there. The air, as I mentioned, was toxic. But the further you got away from downtown, the better. And we arrived at his dad's apartment. And that moment was really interesting because aside from my friend who I was staying with, these would be the first people we spoke to about the events, right? About like, we already knew what each other thought. He was one of my best friends. We talked about it. But, you know, hearing a, a, a third person, another person, what are they going to say about the, these events? And uh, we went up to his dad's apartment and the door opened and there was his dad standing there. And my friend said, what do you think? And his dad looked at us and said, well, I had to come down sooner or later. About the towers, and you know the walls around mm-hmm. Gaza have to come down sooner or later. Yeah, right. absolutely. Um, better sooner rather than later. As that well. is my position as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't feel it's I'm. It's my business to tell anyone what they should or shouldn't do, mm-hmm. but um, they got to come down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Bay Area really showed up um, at the action yesterday as well. Uh, Palestinian youth movement. Shout out to them. Um, and shout out to the Bay Area organizers. They're really, they're really down with it. Um, and obviously, I think there were over a thousand people who came out. So um, that was incredibly, incredibly awesome to see. Um, and that's pretty much it. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of discourse. I've already been seeing a lot of discourse on social media, for better or for worse. Um, I only have like one social media app, but somehow I still get sucked into like. <laughs> To all of the toxicity that comes with that. Um, luckily, it's not Twitter, at least. Um, I think I would lose my absolute mind if I was still on Twitter. It's not good. It's not. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's not. But um, but yeah, um, I am looking forward to getting into the discourse um, around Stop Cop City and um, talking about some events that we're going to be that are going to be happening here on the Davis campus in the coming week. And also just getting into more bad cop, good project stuff. Um, All the stuff you've come to know and love. We assume if you're listening now, you've come to know and love it from our show. We appreciate you out there listening to us. I'm happy to report that has made it through the the ocean of opposition to arrive here (laughs) in the studio to co-host with us. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take a quick musical break. We'll be back at you with some more banter. القاده في نباح شده وتخبيله ويا القاده في نباح شده شده وتخبيله اه العيون زرقين اه العيون واجبني له هلا هلا قلبي شعل وما صبت لك حيله من صاب معاك الويله تحضري فيها يا القليله وتكوني معايا قليله
Roger's managing the studio. Roger, how are you doing? Doing good. Bus is a little bit late, but still here. I blame society. What do you blame? Unitrans. <laughs> Unitrans is society. Unitrans is people. Oh, no, wait, that's soil and green. <laughs> We're talking today, our main topic is uh, an action to try and continue with the project that's known by two different names. 
one is defend the Atlanta forest, and one is stop Cop City. Those are both the same project. The Atlanta forest, which is its name has been reclaimed, it's now Willani Forest uh, outside of Atlanta, is where they're building a large, huge, I think is the term, c- campus, university, for police called Stop Cop City. It's a little bit like what was called School for the Americas, where they trained counterinsurgency soldiers for the for sort of global counterinsurgency. But this is obviously training for domestic counterinsurgency here in the United States. This Cop City project, there's been there's been a sustained effort to try and prevent it from happening. It's had a lot of different aspects. We're talking about a new anti-cop city initiative today but if you want to hear a little bit more about the background on this we have here on npr done one show previously about stop cop city we did it shortly after a really intense wave of repression in which one stop cop city participant was assassinated by the police while sitting cross-legged with hands up shot over 50 times uh, by the name of tortuguita And that show, if you want to uh, listen to that show, track it down, get some background, you can find it on our website, which is, get ready, ucdcopsoffcampus.noblogs.org. Let me give that to you again. ucdcopsoffcampus.noblogs.org. And you can listen to that show where we talk for the first time about the Stop Cop City uh, struggle and about Tortuguita, and we're going to return to that today in advance of a particular event. Roger, you want to talk about the event a little? Yeah, right here in UC Davis, uh, this Thursday, two days from now, um, October 12th at 4 p.m., UC Davis will be hosting the Wilani Worldwide Mass Action Speaking Tour. Um, so this is going to be held in Voorhees Hall, room 126. Uh, if you're not familiar where that is, it's the corner of 1st first, uh, Street and A Street. Um, so that's this Thursday, 4 p.m., room 126 of Voorhees Hall. Uh, and this will be, uh, like we said, we've talked about it in the past, but this will specifically be a speaking tour about the future of this movement and what people can do going forward. That's right. The movement, you know, unlike, or I think in distinction to some struggles or movements we know that sort of have one idea and try it over and over again. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work, maybe it's effective, maybe it's ineffective, but sort of one tactical approach. What's been striking about the Stop Cop City struggle is that it's been built from a coalition of lots of different communities, um, local communities, uh, uh, displaced Native people from the uh, who, who once lived in the, the land where the, the forest stands, um, local, most of the communities of color who are being displaced by the project, who live near there, um, you know, Atlanta area activists, people from all over have come. It's a complex coalition, and there have been complex tactics. They've tried many different approaches to try and shut this thing down, to stop it from happening. That's ongoing. They're trying some new things, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. And... I wonder if, if you, I wonder if, Roger, if you have any thoughts, because I know they're building these cop cities, these new sort of elaborate police campuses, not just in Atlanta. This is the marquee one, the biggest one, I think, the most expensive one, costing Atlanta taxpayers a huge amount of money. But they're building one right now in the Bay Area. Is that correct? Yeah, they're building a cop campus. There's the Stop Cop Campus movement right now, but it's this... 
It's a combination. So the way they're justifying it is they're saying, oh, we're just upgrading or like expanding the current police department. Um, but it's the like a bigger police department building. And then there's this massive 10 lane gun range, as well as a bunch of like classrooms and like uh, uh, movable ranges where they can like be training, like, as you said, domestic insurgents against a domestic insurgency. It's really fa fascinating. You know, we're told to claim no easy victories, and I don't want to claim easy victories. It is worth noting, right, that it, it, it's, I think it's hard to dispute the idea that these new projects and initiatives and massive expenditures and build-outs of the police, particularly toward training in kinds of uh, urban anti-insurrection, are a response directly to the George Floyd uprising and before that uprisings in Ferguson and Baltimore and Charlotte, many other places that characterized the last decade, enough that to be you know, on the most cynical side, they provided justification for more money to throw at cops. But on the less cynical side, these people are scared. Yeah. Like... Especially if they need like a ten lane gun range, like if they if they're that uncertain of their aim, like. <laughs> good point. Good point. Um, and so we're seeing, I think, not I, we're seeing what I'm going to call a nationalization, by which I mean, the movement to stop Cop City in Atlanta, which started as a, an Atlanta specific Fulton County specific project, but it was serious enough. People felt it was a major enough issue. Uh, important enough to be involved in that started drawing people in from across the country and beyond the country in the same way as we've seen previously with with so, some people who are listening will remember Standing Rock, which is just quite amazing, right? It starts as a specific struggle, uh, um, you know, in, in, in the Dakotas. And the next thing you know, if you're here at UC Davis, like people are sort of like dropping out of school or leaving to head off there and be, and be part of it. And we've started to see some things like that uh, in relation to Stop Cop City, people starting to come in from all over the country. And, and that way, it's becoming more and more of a national movement, but also because we're seeing these cop cities start to be proposed or built or, or, or thought about all over the country. Yeah, and even in, like, lesser circumstances, like, there's these obvious, like, massive infrastructure, but even, like, recently it was found out that uh, Sacramento Police Department has been stockpiling weapons, more and more rifles and more and more ammunition than they could ever use. Um, what, what worries me is that they might be able to use it, but <laughs> this, is, this is always the risk. Um, so the initiative that's upcoming that is going to be the topic of discussion on the Thursday gathering that Roger told, told us about, and we'll repeat that information for you later if you want to hear it, we promise. But what's being discussed is a particular initiative or project or tactic, I'm not quite sure how to think about it, um, that's being called Block Cop City, that's inviting people to come from all over the country to take part in a specific action on a specific day in Atlanta to block Cop City from happening at a sort of massive scale. And we're going to be talking after the musical break to one of the people who's been part of thinking about it and trying to develop this process. You'll notice I'm avoiding the word organizer. I don't think they would identify that way. I don't think that's quite how the movement works. But people who are involved in trying to figure out how to make this happen. Um, and we're going to be talking with uh, Barry, who's going to be calling in fairly shortly but before we get to the musical break, I want to put Roger on the spot for a second. We, uh, we both had our chance to, uh, local bag and I, to say 
a thought or two about the events of the last couple of days in the Middle East. And Roger, I don't want to, you to feel like you're not part of that conversation. So I'm just sort of wondering if you have any reflections you wanted to share. Yeah, well, I guess I don't have much to say in the sense that I feel like, especially when people were mentioning that there's so many like horrible takes on Twitter, like this isn't something that not everyone needs to speak about. Like I'm not the most knowledgeable on this. My opinion isn't worth as much as the people that do know about this. And it's one of those times where we really got to focus and center on the voices of people who are actually experienced this the Palestinians that are struggling and resisting, and it's important what they have to say. I think that's really well said, generous, thoughtful, and I, I appreciate that. On that note, uh, let's maybe take it to some music. Local Bag's going to set us up, and when we come back from a musical break, circa 5 o'clock, what I like to call the top of the hour, we're going to have uh, Barry with us to talk a little bit about this Stop Cop City plan.
اللي عن حرش العيد وبالعالي طير طيارة اللي وانصار الأرميد ويا رايح صوب المنارة فتش لي عن حرش العيد وبالعالي طير طيارة اللي وانصار الأرميد ونادي كان في عنا ساحان اللعب فيها من زمان ونادي كانت حول بيوتهم حلو أشجار الرمان قطعوها وبقيت وحدي تسقوها شوي حرام يا رايح صوب بلادي دخلك وصل السلام بلغ أهلي وولادي مشتقلن رف الحمام Welcome back to NPR. It's October 10th. Do I have that right? Am I close? 10-10. good buddy. It's like a CB radio situation. Um, I want to welcome our guest, Barry. Barry, are you with us? Yay, Barry's with us. We always, we, we're, uh, you know, we have 50,000 watts of power here at KDVS. All kinds of power, but our phone hookup is a little wonky, so we're always happy uh, when we have a clear connection with the guest. Barry, I wonder if, uh, first I should introduce you. Barry is uh, someone who has been involved in the Defend the Atlanta Forest Stop Cop City project for quite some time, a couple of years. It's been ongoing. Some of you listening will know about its history. Some of you will know less so maybe we should start there. And Barry, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of Cop City and the struggle against it? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think the, the easiest way to contextualize Cop City um, is that uh, it's a response by the authorities to the 2020 uprising. Um, in, in kind of a, a really broad strokes kind of way, it's them understanding that, you know, they're going to have future uprisings that they're going to need to repress and they want to further train their police for that sort of like militarized operation inside cities. And that's why they want to build a mock city, you know, as part of the the campus to, to do these sorts of trainings. But even more specifically, because of the 2020 uprising and because of the, the strength of the uprising in Atlanta in particular, um, they have a really acute case of, uh, you know, what's been called the blue flu or this uh-huh. phenomenon all around the country of people just don't want to be cops anymore since 2020 um, for obvious reasons. Um, and so this, this police campus, this fancy new facility was uh, the Atlanta Police Foundation's answer to this, an attempt to, you know, put a, a you know, clean new face on policing and and try to uh you know in, invite more officers and try to uh try to get past that problem and um very very early on in the process um like before the city council like even wanted knowledge of these backroom deals to to be public information about the plans for cop city leaked and very quickly uh People in Atlanta mobilized and, you know, started having big public meetings. You know, there was a, a meeting with over 200 people around a, 
a bonfire in in the forest uh, where they're intending to build Cop City. And, you know, resistance began very early back in spring of 2021 uh, with uh, multiple acts of sabotage, people destroying construction equipment and uh, doing demonstrations outside the homes of city council members to disrupt their uh, Zoom meetings. They were still having city council meetings uh, via the Internet at that time because of COVID. So people were actively disrupting those by actually going to the city council members' houses and disrupting their ability to, to vote to approve Cop City. They voted to approve it anyways. And, you know, the, the struggle just kind of has escalated since then. One of the things that you uh, suggest, which is important to remind ourselves, is that this isn't a narrowly an anti-police struggle, although that's clearly a core aspect of it, but it's also an environmental struggle, right? It's the this huge campus. They're, they're knocking down a bunch of forests to do it. And this is, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but Atlanta, I think, is one of the most heavily forested uh, cities or urban areas in the country. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's true. They they say it has the the most tree cover of any major metropolitan area, um, and yeah, sometimes I mean you can you can go to like a high place in Atlanta, like up on a hill, and and look out and just kind of see forest because you know there's so many big trees going over neighborhoods and over people house people's houses and stuff that you know at a certain distance you can't even really see the city; you just see the forest. So one of the one of the slogans of the movement has been, you know. Uh, Atlanta is a city in a forest. Right. And that forest is being being annihilated to train some killers. Um, and it seems like the protest movement, or however you want to formulate it, has been really, really powerful and energetic and in many ways successfully threatening so that it's drawn uh, um, a lot of responses. And maybe I'll, ask, I'll, I'll turn things over to Roger to sort of think, think through that with us. Yeah, um, Barry, you were saying, like, earlier that, like, you know, they're building this facility in order to repress people in the future, but as we can see, they're also fully willing, and they already have the capability of repressing people currently. Um, Could you talk about some of the repression that's been going on? Uh, Yeah, definitely. Um, So... I mean, one thing I think that is worth noting, like, before getting into the repression is is actually just, you know, how um, far the movement went and, you know, how much it achieved before uh, I think the authorities, like, even kind of realized, like, the, the scope of it or, you know, the kind of threat that it that it poses to them. And so, you know, the, the forest occupation... Um, lasted for over a year and it was only you know really near the near the end of that time when they did start having these really large multi-agency raids with uh georgia state patrol and atlanta police department and DeKalb police department and all these different agencies like collaborating to to do these raids on the forest um to attack what was actually like very small numbers of people holding down the occupation um, at that time, um, and so those uh, the the first of those raids uh, that resulted in really serious charges uh, were in December of last year, and I so many people have been charged with domestic terrorism at this point that I'm 
losing a little track of, of you know, how many were at, were at each phase. But I think it was six people that first time were charged with domestic terrorism. Um, and this was, you know, people who were peacefully occupying tree sits and things like that. Um, and then um, just about a, a month later or less than a month later even, there was another raid and um, Georgia State Patrol, patrol uh killed a forest defender named tortuguita um and has has refused to claimed that tortuguita shot them but has refused to release any kind of actual evidence to that um and you know on that same day a number of other people were also arrested and, and charged with domestic terrorism and uh the movement responded with like a very large demonstration three days later in downtown Atlanta that resulted in a, a, a cop car being burned and the Atlanta Police Foundation being attacked. Um, and uh, again, the police kind of did the, followed their same pattern of um, being completely unable to catch anyone actually in the act of doing anything as serious as burning a police car. They just grabbed whoever they could and then charged them as if they had done that thing. So somebody from that day is, is being charged with domestic terrorism and arson, even though they were arrested in the back of a police car by the time the the other police car actually burned and things like that. Um, and then the, the last major round of repression happened a few months later in March of this year when um, a week of action to... Um, invite people from all over the country to come and, and fight against Cop City and honor Tortuguita's memory uh, took place the first week of March, and uh, a very large action occurred where over 200 people in a black block uh, took over the entire construction site, chased the police out, and burned all the equipment inside. And then, in retaliation for that, the police attacked a nearby music festival that was honoring Tortuguita in a different part of the forest over a mile away and charged uh, 23 random people with domestic terrorism. Um, and then, finally, just, just a, a few weeks ago, um, the uh, state attorney general's office um, charged 61 people with racketeering with with rico um which carries i think up to 25 years in prison and so those those 61 people facing that include the 41 who were already facing domestic terrorism charges and then uh, a smattering of other people who had less serious charges including three people who had been arrested for posting up flyers in the neighborhood of one of the officers that killed tortuguita um and the, the one thing that I think is, there's a lot to say about the RICO, but it's just worth noting that the office that's doing the RICO, that's, that's pushing it forward, is the Republican State Attorney General's office. And both of the actual counties where all of this is occurring, Fulton County and DeKalb County, have, like, Democrat-run uh, governments that are, um, for the most part, have been, like, very lockstep in alignment with the state Republicans in attempting to criminalize this movement and repress it and label it as terroristic and, and whatnot. Um, but with these RICO charges, it's been clear that 
those local attorney generals, or those sorry, those lo- local district attorneys have refused to participate at all in the prosecution because it's so clearly a political prosecution. And so the attorney general's office is just kind of moving forward on their own, um, trying to criminalize these 61 people. I wonder what you make of the intensity of these charges, domestic terrorism, RICO. You know, it's funny. I'm from the Bay Area, and there's a long history of protests that are in genre. They're similar to to what you're describing in Atlanta, right? They're um, tree sits, uh, people uh, massing together and occupying spaces to prevent infrastructure building projects that they think are dangerous or deleterious to society. I'm very familiar with protests like that. And, you know, the charges that I've, I've known for people as a cop are like uh, trespassing, refusal, refusal to disperse a classic, right? But things that are largely misdemeanors, unless they literally get caught, you know, um, blowing something up or something like that. But here we have a really different circumstance. Same kind of protest, occupying space, preventing, preventing construction from happening, tree sits. And we're seeing domestic terrorism charges and we're seeing RICO you know, charges, which both charges were invented to de- hypothetically to deal with quite different kinds of supposed crimes, supposed problems. So what do you make of the, like, the incredible, to me, intensity of these charges that are being brought? Well, I mean, one thing I think is interesting to point out is that, um, you know, these are both state-level charges, and both of these statutes uh, have come under a lot of legal criticism for being, like, particularly broad, um, and, and there's a lot of arguments to be made that both of them are unconstitutional, actually. Like, uh, in particular, the, um, the Georgia domestic terrorism law is is written so broadly that it, you know, seems that it encompasses things that no normal person would would put in this category of terrorism, you know, regardless of whether that's even valid. Um, But it's interesting to note that this law was passed uh, immediately in response to the Dylan Roof massacre. So this was something that was passed in response to um, actual right-wing terrorism taking place in Georgia, but it has only ever been used by the, you know, increasingly fringe right-wing state government to um, target left-wing activists for, like you said, things that normally would, would get you just a misdemeanor. Yeah, I think this is, you know, a reason, if there weren't enough already, for everyone everywhere to pay attention to this, because... You know, if these become normalized, if these charges stick, and I, I'm, I'm hoping that's difficult. It will be, will be difficult to make these charges stick. But if they do, that's a kind of shot fired for everyone who's going to be involved in protests. And it's clear there's going to be more, just as there's going to be more attempts to build other cop cities, cop, cop campuses and things like this. One of the striking things I mentioned earlier that the Stop Cop City movement has tried a variety of tactics, and you've, you've outlined some of them from uh, forest occupations, uh, going to building sites, various other, uh, other sort of tactics. But uh, one of the tactics that arose in relation to these legal struggles was itself a legal struggle, right, which is the so-called referendum, an effort to put a referendum on the ballot uh, to let the, the people of, I guess, it's Ful- is it Fulton County, vote on whether, yeah. whether they think it's a good idea to spend all their money 
on building Cop City. Now, I know I was down in Atlanta in, in August and was there for some conversations around this, that this is a, in some ways, contentious or debated strategy in addition to the strategy itself how, or, or tactic, how it's unfolded, what's happened, the mayor's refusal to sort of recognize or accept it. Can you maybe talk us through this complex referendum question in a way that helps us understand better what's going on? I'm sorry to put you on the spot with like, tell us everything, but you seem to know everything. So we appreciate your, your filling us in. Okay, well, I can try. I, one thing I'm not entirely up to date on is, is like the most recent legal maneuverings of, you know, the, the city attempting to somehow prevent the referendum before it, you know, prevent it from even getting to the, the point of being on the ballot. Um, but, I mean, I, I think that, um, I mean, it's really, I, I, I think that regardless of whether or not the referendum is able to actually get past these legal challenges and get to the point of even giving people the chance to vote on this thing, I think it has actually been pretty successful in sort of, you know, forcing the the city government to just, take these just blatantly, obviously anti-democratic positions, um, even to the point of, you know, uh, just directly contradicting previous statements made by this mayor about uh, certain tools like signature matching that could be used to disqualify signatures. And in the past, he had said, this is like a, this is a voter suppression tool, you know, this is terrible. And then, you know, quietly they were trying to use the, the signature matching uh, to, to disqualify referendum uh, petition signatures. And it, it seems like, you know, that particular one was, was just a little bit too far. The scandal was too much for them, and it seems like they're, they're not going to be able to do that signature matching thing. And, you know, even if they can do everything possible to, you know, make it so these 113,000 signatures, you know, legally don't matter and they can somehow get around it being put on the ballot, then at the very least, everybody knows that more people signed this petition to get Cop City on the ballot than even voted for the mayor or voted at all in the last mayoral election. And so there's like a very real sense that like the entire political class of Atlanta is staking their future on this facility. And it's entirely possible that all of their careers will be brought down with it when it's defeated. I like your optimism. I I would love to see that happen, and I hope it does. It really is quite amazing. This, And, of course, this is also, I think, a way to reflect on many struggles that we see in many places, which is the absolute demand by power that those struggling for any kind of liberation, any kind of emancipatory direction, must use authorized, approved legal mechanisms to pursue it. And so here we have an example of a group deciding, like, okay, we're going to do that. We're going to do it exactly as outlined. We're going to collect signatures. We're going to gather them up. We're going to bring them in. They do that, and it's just being being sort of uh, com- almost comedically, in a, in a repugnant way, like comedically overridden, refused. There's actually no interest in in allowing legitimate processes if they don't work out in the way that the state wants them to work out. It's, it's uh, in a way, it makes something so visible that, that is, is uh, we all know, and yet we somehow can't believe it when it happens. It's so ex- extraordinary. Um, 
I want to pass things back to Roger for our next uh, sort of line of inquiry before we go to our next musical break. Yeah, so we've been talking about sort of like past uh, strategies and tactics that people have been using. So obviously, like you mentioned, there's like people occupying the forest. um, And we just went over like the referendum, which failed to work. Um, Moving now to the future, what do you uh, could you go over some of what the block cop city plan is like what? Even though that there's a multitude of people meeting and talking about different plans going forward, what's sort of a general idea? Okay, so Block Cop City is kind of this idea that, you know, emerged simultaneously from from many different sectors of the movement and, and kind of with, with multiple different justifications that all all really seem to line up in this in this moment. And that's that's why I would speculate that there's there's so much momentum for it. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, we have this stuff going on with the referendum and, you know, it's, you know, becoming increasingly clear that, you know, the city will, if they can squash the referendum through, you know, legal or extra legal means or whatever. Um, and so, you know, in, in response to that, we, we had, um, this action by a number of, of clergy and other activists who, went on to the construction site uh, just a couple days after the RICO charges were announced to shut down construction with their presence and to uh, enforce what they called a people's stop work order. You know, getting getting at this idea of, you know, there are these battles in the courts where people are going to be hopefully getting the court to, you know, issue an injunction or something, but it's becoming increasingly increasingly clear that those institutional avenues are not something we can count on. They're not something that has, has prevented the destruction of the forest so far. They've, they've, you know, bulldozed and cleared about 80 acres already. And so this idea of a people stop work order was sort of, you know, uh, put forth and done as, a, as an example. And um, those people didn't, didn't get RICO charges, possibly because their local clergy and the, the police, you know, didn't, didn't want to weaken their already weak case or, you know, create more scandal where they already have plenty. Um, but I, I, I think that that kind of led the way a little bit in showing that um, the police have had a long time to kind of adapt to the tactics that were being used for the forest occupation. Um, and they've, like, extremely, you know, militarized that entire zone. You know, there's there's actually, like, you know, rich parts of Atlanta where business owners and, you know, uh, neighborhood associ- association people are complaining because they're, they're taking too many cops from, from their beat to go patrol the cop city area, um, spending tens of thousands of dollars every day to guard the site. And there's kind of a sense of, you know, they've, they've, uh, they're, they're prepared for, all the kind of actions that we've done so far and and the actions that we haven't done the action we haven't done so far is is something like this where it's planned months in advance so that people from all over the country can have time to take off work and plan to be there and everybody knows exactly what to expect you know there are very clear action agreements about um you know proceeding in sort of a dignified uh nonviolent 
way. You know, I would I would maybe describe it as a as a militant nonviolence or something. But uh, you know, in a way where everybody knows that uh, you know they're they're taking calculated risks and people can kind of know what they're getting into. And the the kind of wager with that is that will allow for uh, a growth of of the movement and a growth of the the size of the action that's possible. Whereas before, you know, there's been hundreds of people out uh, on the construction site uh, opposing construction. You know, now the idea is that with this much buildup, this much notice, and this much kind of buy-in from different organizations and churches and networks all around the country and in Atlanta, that there can be thousands of people. Uh, We're going to talk more about that. Uh, with Barry, after the musical break, I want to remind everyone that if you want to hear more about Stop Cop City, maybe plug in, maybe get involved, maybe think about going to Atlanta or figuring out how you can be involved in a solidarity action. A good idea or a good place to start would be to come to a meeting on the UC Davis campus this Thursday, 4 o'clock in 126 Voorhees Hall. You can find that if you go to the corner of the great grid of the city of Davis, 1st Street and 8th Street, and look for the ugliest building you can see, <laughs> that's Voorhees Hall. First floor, 126, 4 o'clock. We're going to talk about it in person with people who helped sort of think through the Block Cop City proposal, who are doing a, a national tour to talk about what's going on, try and help people out as they think about it themselves. And maybe this is something you want to be involved in. I, th- I hope so. I think so. We're going to talk a little bit more about it after the break. Local bag, take us to the music. States efforts at the Geneva arms talks 
and called on the Soviet Union to take a positive attitude.
we're back on NPR, No Police Radio, more or less what I like to refer to as the bottom of the hour. I never have so much fun. Like, this is the best part of the show for me. I'm going to come in every two weeks just so I can be like, eh, it's the middle of the, I don't know. I don't know why I like it so much. It's just my thing. We've been talking with Barry about the Stop Cop City Initiative. We talked a little bit before the break about the specific planning that's coming up for it and, and, and what it looks like. And, Barry, I want to follow up on something you see. You talked about wanting it to be dignified. You referred to sort of militant, non- militant nonviolence. This is always, I think, uh, a challenging, difficult, contentious, loaded question for people involved in direct action struggles, people involved in political organizing, about what the tenor of it's going to be, to what extent does it fit within a legal framework, to what extent does it... Is it indifferent to a legal framework or intentionally trying to challenge a legal framework? One of the sites we have in the United States for thinking about this is the civil rights movement, which largely, not entirely, but largely models itself as nonviolent, nonetheless was often quite antagonistic, often uh, intentionally broke the law, kind of civil disobedience uh, a style, forcing uh, um, confrontations with the authorities, forcing the authorities to sort of show themselves or, or, or what, what, what kind of uh, power they were. Uh, so it's a complex, contentious issue. I certainly know people out there who, when they heard this whole plan for everyone to converge on Atlanta and uh, ha- have uh, a march on the construction site that was going to be nonviolent, however militant, I definitely know people out there who like sort of gave it the side eye. They're like, I don't know, what about like people doing what they want to do? What about not complying with legal structures? I can see a contrary argument really clearly, right? Which is that one of the ways this movement's going to succeed is if it is truly extending beyond Atlanta, beyond the local communities who are deeply invested and committed in stopping Cop City. But allowing it to grow, making people feel like they can participate, be involved, come in from all over that involves some thoughtfulness about what people's tolerances are, what will bring people in, what will keep people away. I just wonder what your own thoughts are about this particular strategic decision to uh, organize an uh, appointedly nonviolent event with community agreements that sort of people are going to try and uh, hold that line. What are, what are your thoughts here? Um, well, I guess like, um, yeah, I, I do think that the term strategic nonviolence is, is a good one for this situation um and i think it should be very clear that you know if you look at the block cop city website or you look at any of the materials that have been put out um you know they're all very clear about you know sort of honoring the whole scope of resistance that's occurred during this movement and you know understanding that there is all all sorts of resistance including types that the state labels as violent that have you know gotten us to this point Um, to the point where, you know, people around the country are, you know, even paying attention to this and, you know, a a point where cop cities that were proposed in multiple other places, you know, such as Maui and Hawaii uh, have been have been canceled, you know, just kind of from a a spillover effect of of all this. Um, And, you know, I I think another thing that's important for the context you know, is like I, I hear a lot of people having concerns from other places about like, you know, this is going to allow for the movement to be kind of, you know, 
whitewashed or, you know, erased the history of what really happened and everything and, you know, like, get us back into this kind of dichotomy between the good protester and the bad protester and violent and nonviolent action and things like that, that, you know, we're, we're such a, a problem, you know, for, yeah. for movements years ago. Um, and like, you know, I have, I have a few different responses to that. And I mean, the, the first one is just that I think, you know, even aside from the local situation in, in Atlanta, which I can get into in a sec, like, I think that the 2020 uprising really hopefully like put all that to bed. Like, you know, the poll that came out showing that a majority of people in this country supported the burning of the third precinct, I think is pretty clear. And I think that, you know, that sort of, you know, change in the way people in this country understand, um, you know, violence and nonviolence relating to protests, like really was just transformed by the uprising. And that's why in Atlanta throughout this entire movement, um, there's never been a denunciation of the, the quote unquote violent actions or the property destruction that's taken place. Like, you know, the, the referendum itself, like the, the, the organizers of the referendum, you know, from their official social media accounts were, you know, regularly tweeting communiques that described like illegal nighttime actions that had happened. Um, and there's like, you know, broad support for those sorts of things, even amongst people who don't want to do those things themselves or whatever, you know? And um, in particular, like, in Atlanta, um, the the repression has hit hard, and it is, like, a fact that the police have arrested random bystanders and charged them with domestic terrorism. And so in order to, like, get to a point where um, really large numbers of people, not just from around the country, but people in Atlanta can, like, feel not safe, because, of course, we're never safe when we're opposing the police, but, you know, at, at least have some sense of the kind of levels of risks that they're taking in order to, like, know what they're signing up for on that day, on November 13th, when when this action is going to occur. Um, you know, it's it's just a fact that, like, when when a when a poster is put when a rally is called that you know very clearly advertises that a black block is going to happen or something it says wear black to avenge tortuguita huh. you know the most people that's ever shown up has been two or three hundred people and that's amazing and that's wonderful but we understand that in order to bring this struggle to the next level we need to have an escalation and a growth in numbers, in just sheer numbers of people on the construction site taking it over and showing very clearly that this movement is not exclusively a tiny militant fringe. Like the, the, the repressive operation that the, that the state is trying to do right now is to take this, this whole, you know, span of, of activism from, from the legal to the illegal, from the nonviolent to the violent or whatever, and just just fully separate the, just make make everything in the middle of that uh, illegal or impossible. You know, they, they would arrest, they were arresting people for very simple 
just downtown protest marches or, you know, disrupting a bank or disrupting a Home Depot or things like that. They're arresting people for hanging up flyers and stuff. And, and their goal with that really is to just make it so there's only, there's only two options. You can either vote, which they're also even trying to shut down, or you can, you know, be a, be a nighttime militant doing one of these, these actions. But even those things are not, not possible inside the forest because they've, they've militarized that zone. Um, the only further escalation that the movement has to be able to take back that zone is numbers. And, and again, the only way that, that we think it's possible to get thousands of people out is if people at least know what they, they're getting into. Yeah, and on that note, like, here at NPR, we're in Davis, we mentioned the Davis event, but um, since we're, the, that new, the new plan is to get more numbers, like, how can folks in, like, California, NorCal, how can folks in Davis specifically for this upcoming meeting, like, what, what, what can people expect at this upcoming meeting of how, like, NorCal can get involved in this? Um, well, the, the biggest thing, obviously, is, uh, you know, people should go to blockcopcity.org and read a bit more about it and, you know, consider um, traveling to Atlanta themselves. And, and you know, if not, then uh, supporting others in, in going. You know, a lot of different cities are forming local groups to fundraise for travel expenses and in order to send people to this action. Um and I, I think an element that we haven't really brought up yet about this that is uh, in some ways drawing on the legacy of the anti-nuclear movement and, you know, lots of other movements that have, um, by, by focusing on an affinity group model for this action where, you know, people are being asked to, to form self-organized groups to come to Atlanta together, to come to act, the action together, and uh, people are being asked to show up uh, three days early to come on November 10th, and then that weekend, the 11th and 12th, there will be uh, direct action trainings, and there will also be uh, spokes councils where representatives or, or members of, of all the different affinity groups will get to kind of coordinate their activities and sort of build a somewhat collaborative plan together. Um, so, you know, folks who want to help can either about forming an affinity group or they can think about uh, ways to just get the word out locally or raise funds for, for other people to travel to Atlanta. That is super helpful. I'm going to repeat all the uh, information for when the meetings are, what the websites are in a minute. But before I do, Barry, I want to just two things. One, I want to thank you so much for giving uh, your time to uh, help us understand what's going on and how people might be able to be involved. But also I want to offer you the chance if there's anything else that you want to add, we had our questions, we, did, we, you know, we, we, we pursued some things, but if there's anything else you want to add, we have time for that. Anything you want to throw out there for us to think about? I mean, you know, just, just on the other topic that, that y'all were discussing today, um, you know, the, the Atlanta Police Department and the, the Atlanta Police Foundation have like a, a really long-term relationship with the Israeli state and Israeli police forces. Um, and even just this week, there were there were multiple high-ranking APD officers that were supposed to travel to Israel for for training through the the Gili program, uh, and 
hope hopefully that trip had to be canceled but you know i for folks who are looking for a really concrete way to support palestinian struggle in this moment in the united states where we're so distant from the conflict i think really coming together and just fully killing this project killing cop city um would would be a big step towards sort of defeating this wave of militarization that in a lot of ways is kind of a imperial boomerang kind of thing where you know i think it's worth noting that the the head the president the ceo of the atlanta police foundation which is the largest police foundation in the country and he is the by an order of magnitude highest paid head of a police foundation dave wilkinson was part of george bush's inner circle at the beginning of the war on terror he was in that room where bush was reading the book to the school kids when when he heard about 9-11 and so this this idea of people in atlanta being charged with domestic terrorism for opposing his project is not a coincidence and so you know people should see this struggle in that lineage as well as you know the war on terror has been like fully discredited abroad and now they're trying to bring it home and we need to stop it here Thanks so much, right on. That's 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 an um, excellent place to end this discussion with. We're again very grateful for your time. Uh, thank you for making it, and we hope to see you soon. We hope as many as possible out there will see every each other down in Atlanta. I want to remind you if you want to find out more about the Block Cop City project, you can go to the website. It is this is not going to shock you, blockcopcity.org. If you go to that, you come to the front page, the call to action. You can learn a lot more information about how to mobilize. You can learn about the tour where. Uh, People are traveling around the country holding events uh, to help get people prepared, organized, mobilized, interested, involved, engaged. And we're having an event here on the Davis campus. Roger, tell us about that event one more time. Yeah, so that's the Wilani Worldwide Mass Action Speaking Tours coming to Davis this Thursday at 4 p.m. Voorhees Hall, room 126. It's the uh, If you go to the corner of 1st Street and A Street, it's the worst building in Davis. <laughs> I'm hearing rumors that there will be freshly baked snacks. Ooh. Oh, yeah, and with that, Let's take it to a musical break. We're going to come back. We're going to do Bad Cop, Good Project. We're going to play a little bit more music, and we're going to walk out into the night. Thank you all. Thanks again, Barry.
dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. It had this phone number on it, and, well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger in greater Sacramento. Learn more at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hey, what are you doing? I'm throwing out these batteries. You can't throw those batteries in the trash. I didn't know that. The state of California has imposed a landfill ban on all household batteries. As of February 2006, household batteries cannot be thrown away in the trash. The Old County Division of Integrated Waste Management collects household batteries and recycles them. For a list of places you can recycle batteries and what types are accepted, go to www.davisrecycling.org and click on Batteries. A national survey by Sears, the WNBA, and the National Alliance of Breast Cancer Organizations found that 62% of women underestimate their chances of getting breast cancer, and 31% do not believe they will develop the disease. Women are also not talking to each other about important breast health activities like mammograms, and doctors tend to talk to women age 55 and over less about breast health than they do younger women. Because early detection is so important in saving lives, the more women support each other and the more physicians emphasize breast health activities to all women, the better the outcomes will be. The Sears WNBA Breast Health Awareness Program will exceed the $1 million mark in cumulative donations to the National Alliance of Breast Cancer Organizations. And we are back. I just want to underscore something really important about one of the messages you just heard. If you do have uh, used dead batteries hanging out around your house, just put them in your pocket, maybe inside a sock. Bring them to a protest. They can be pretty helpful. With that, I want to go to our closing segment. You know it. You love it. Bad Cop, Good Project. We're going to start with Good Project. Roger, take it away. Yeah, so uh, today's Good Project is um, it's vague, but it's also a specific event. Uh, we're talking about writing to incarcerated individuals. Um, so... The carceral state, the carceral society we live in, tries to isolate us, and it's important that we build community with incarcerated individuals. Uh, so specifically tomorrow from 7 to 8 p.m., SAC IWOC, uh, that's the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, is hosting a virtual letter-writing night for those who may be interested. Writing letters helps build powerful connections, and as abolitionists, it's important that we hear and center the stories of incarcerated individuals. The link to the virtual writing night will be uh, bit.ly slash calwrites. Um, that's rights, W-R-I-T-E-S. 
If you can't make it, but you would still like to learn more about how you can write to incarcerated individuals, I recommend reading some of the resources by the Anarchist Black Cross about how to get involved. Yeah, I want to. I want to really back that up. Co-sign it, whatever, whatever it is. Some of the people listening at home will know. I myself have been in jail. I have a lot of friends who are incarcerated right now. I don't know. A lot probably overstates it. I have some friends who are incarcerated right now, and we write letters to them, just so like we write letters to people who we've never met. Um, it's pretty fun, right? You just get together virtually on Zoom the way we do it. I'm not saying this is how it will work tomorrow night. Every group does it differently. But, you know, we make a playlist. Everyone suggests one song. We make a playlist. Someone puts it on. We listen to the music. We write letters to incarcerated people. And um, and they write back, right? there. It's, it's an important lifeline, a way to know, to be in contact with the world beyond the walls. And uh, getting the letters back is amazing. And, and um, it's... It's a good human thing to do, and I want to encourage everyone out there to, 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 to think about taking part in it. It's pretty easy. It's pretty fun. Speaking of easy and fun, let's talk about terrible stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Our closing segment of the show, what we like to call bad cop. The problem of the bad cop segment is there's always so many things to choose from. But as you might suspect, tonight we're going to focus on the relationship of policing in the U.S. and particularly at the U.C.'s to uh, struggles in Palestine for, for Palestinian liberation. There's lots and lots of things to talk about. We're not going to cover them all. But I want to note a couple small things just about UC Davis, where many of our listeners have some experience. They were students. They worked there. They still do. They still are. Who knows? The current boss at, uh, at UC Davis, uh, tell me if I have this right, Roger. His name's Gary May. Is that correct? Yeah, I think he's a chancellor. Chancellor, that's the term I was looking for. It's a very fancy term for boss at a university. Gary May is the chancellor. And as you may know, Gary May, as chancellor, aggressively opposed uh, BDS uh, as a struggle, which after long debate and organizing and discussion and voting was approved uh, as a policy to engage in the BDS uh, boycott. Uh, um, by the, the, the student senate here. The students agreed as a collective representative body to enter into, and, and Gary May blocked it entirely. Now, I will admit, I have mixed feelings about BDS in the sense that I have mixed feelings about like boycott as a strategy. I'm never quite sure. I wonder if there's other things to do. But it's worth noting that if you're Gary May or whoever, and you prevent BDS, that is to say, you prevent legitimate, organized uh, approaches to try and bring about political results, you fundamentally guarantee that there's going to be illegitimate struggles. Like, people are not going to stop struggling for freedom, y'all. And if you block the ways that are legitimated, you're going to get ways that you then think are illegitimate. And you can't say, oh, no, that's illegitimate. You yourself have set the conditions to guarantee that happening. Gary May, if you want to think about what happened uh, with the, rem the, the remarkable, historically remarkable uh, jailbreak of uh, Gaza a couple of days ago, Gary May is one of the people who guaranteed that would happen. And I want you all to think about that for a second. But I want to toss it back to Roger. You want to say more about uh, cops and Israel? Yeah, I'm going to take it on and keep going into Gary May. We hate Gary May here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's not surprising. Like, we all know we don't really like Gary May. So it's sort of like, wow, Gary May did another bad thing. But also <laughs> it makes sense that he did that bad thing, considering that he sits on the board of Lidos or Lidos. 
um, which is a defense contracting company, and he makes about uh, like 500000 a year sitting on this board. That's a lot of money. And uh, this defense contracting company specifically um, has a partnership with uh, the Israeli uh, two. It's the Israeli military police as well as like the Israeli defense force. Um, and they provide like a multitude of things, mostly like technological and like operation systems. So they provide like a lot of um, like the coordinations for all the all the different weaponry to communicate with each other. Um, and then if on the topic of defense contractors, um, most people know about Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin has supplied at least uh, 105. I might get the name of the plane wrong, but I think it's an F-16. Uh, which is like a fighter-bomber plane. These are the planes that are currently being used to bomb Gaza. Um, and Lockheed Martin has a fair amount of ties specifically with UC Davis. Uh, specifically, there's uh, UC Davis research has been used to create these things called phototonic chips, which uh, have been put into some of the new Lockheed Martin planes and satellites. And then also, Lockheed Martin has its very own scholarship at UC Davis. Wouldn't you know it. Now, if you want to know more about collaborations between uh, U.S. policing and, and Israel, one of the sites you can get information is called deadlyexchange.org. You can probably spell that for yourself, but it's D-E-A-D-L-Y-E-X-C-H-A-N-G-E.org. Deadlyexchange.org. You can go there. There's a lot of information. It's not the only place to learn about these things, but if you want to know more, it's a pretty good place to start. I got nothing else except immense gratitude for everyone who's out there listening. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Roger, for braving Unitrans <laughs> to get here. Thank you, Local Bag, for making it all happen start to finish. Love y'all. Love everyone listening. Have a good night.